I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Andrew Dar. And we love to watch. We love to watch. Oh, hi, podcast audience. You're our favorite audience. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played. The art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens. But no one else is in the room where it happens. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Peter. Hello. Hey. Uh, I've already done the oh hi, hi. Thing, so I can't do it. As yeah, I know. Time. We <laughs> got it right out in the open. It's done. No more oh hi's. <laughs> we can't just make this whole thing quotes from the room wall yeah. to wall. Though it would be fun to do. It would. We're here with uh, my best friend, Peter, uh, and Andrew, also my best friend. And <laughs> we are going to try to do a podcast where no one tears us apart. I think that's all the big ones. <laughs> Uh, oh hi doggy oh hi doggy um (laughs) yeah so we're we're really excited to to have andrew on the show uh we've andrew is one of the few i think the only guest besides peter who's not a guest that i talked to before ever recording a podcast with uh and that is because andrew has the same obsession that uh, started Peter and I. Peter and I speaking in the first place. A little game called uh, Bloodborne. Well, and it was you who like kindled it and kindled that obsession. Oh That's, man, I th- love, this I is love this the is pun. hip from slaying guys. If you're not a fan of the games, get them. You'll understand so much <laughs> more of the show. What the ties that bind us uh, together. So so yeah, so we're so excited to have Andrew on and we're doing we're on our third week of of guest request month. And when I first mentioned to Andrew almost a year ago now, I said, Hey, do you ever want to be on our show? Is there any movie you'd like to do? He's like, Yeah, you guys uh ever thought about doing the room? And we're like, Yeah, we'll figure out a month to to fit in because you know, Peter and I both love it. And then obviously it's been about a year and we couldn't figure it out, and so we just did this guest request month. So uh so, so this is this is this is a big one. I request I requested it, you know, with a gun to your head screaming, Where's my fucking podcast guest yeah. spot? <laughs> yeah. Where's my podcast guest spot? <laughs> uh, podcast guest spot. What? How could you? Say it over How could and over you? And over again. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh. We can just call you uh, Andrew R. Yes, exactly. <laughs> R. <laughs> so, so yeah. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into. We're not gonna have a game. We're gonna have something very interesting. We're we're gonna talk about the room. I think we're gonna. We've kind of alluded to this. We're gonna try to. Actually, I'll, I'll save that a little bit. We're, we'll talk about how we kind of plan to cover it. Uh, before we do that, Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience with uh, three things about yourself? In a wrap, if you think you can do that. Oh, boy. We've never if asked only. anybody to do that before, but if you'd like. You can start um, with my name is Andrew Dar, and I'm here to say <laughs> I want to talk about myself in a rapping way. <laughs> you can just do it normal. I'm sorry. Well, now I feel like I have to. <laughs> you, like come, you, you, come, you like walk away and we're like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And we grow beards as you, uh, you go to like rap school somewhere. You study under like a rap artist in the mountains. Then you come back. You're like, all right, I'm ready. Yeah, I, I might I might need to uh, exploit my girlfriend's connection to David Diggs. Um, they're not close friends, but they they do know each other. I'm sure, he could give me some pointers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, mean that's like the most interesting thing anyone's ever said on this podcast. So I think that counts for one. 
Oh, if, oh, if only it were about me. <laughs> well, you're currently Basically, living with someone who knows yeah. David Diggs. Yeah, can you tell us three interesting things about your girlfriend? Yeah. Oh, there are so many more interesting things about my girlfriend than there are about me. <laughs> so the way that, I mean, this this will be relevant to me in a moment, but the way that my girlfriend knows him is that he used to open for shows that her sketch comedy group wrote. I also used to be part of a sketch comedy group. I guess that's one interesting thing. Uh, we met uh, when we were in the Second City Training Center. We did the writing program together, and then after we graduated, uh, the five of us thought that we like each other's comedic sensibilities, and we wanted to write some shows, and so we uh, wrote them and contracted with a theater in Chicago to put them up, cast them ourselves, and um, had a good time doing it. Yeah, and I wish... True. Uh, it was called Whiskey Rye Productions, and the rye was W R Y. Pretty good. Oh, it's a good yeah, pun. Thank you. Solid pun. Thank you. You get one hundred. We love to watch points. Oh, awesome! What do I? I how do I cash those in? You, oh, you don't. Okay. You it's more like it's more like weights. It's a, it's a hundred <laughs> weights around your neck. A <laughs> hundred dead albatrosses yeah, each hanging yeah. by. Yeah. Albatry hanging by your neck. Um, Another, inter I guess, semi-interesting thing about me is that um, most months, uh, my girlfriend, myself, and another friend go to a Simpsons trivia show uh, held in the back of a comic book store on Sunset Boulevard. And the last time we went, we placed first, and we were very uh, proud of ourselves, and it happened to be in the month when they had an overflow of prizes, so we got all the stuff for knowing more about The Simpsons than other weirdos. That's so awesome. I love <laughs> I, I love that so much. Did we get to three uh, about yourself? Uh, right now, I'm currently working for a law firm to help them develop an artificial intelligence lawyer. What? Yeah. A robot lawyer? Now I've heard everything. <laughs> what? I mean, wow. it sounds like you're living in a Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> a little bit. Um, <laughs> it, it sounds like the it could be a premise for either a dystopian sci-fi story or a Rick and Morty story. Yeah. <laughs> So wait, is it supposed to be helping people through like smaller charges to like just give them quick legal guidance or is it what's it, the goal here? The goal is to create a program that can understand certain types of legal documents and generate responses to them. So is it more of a paralegal or is it a true like lawyer? It would be a true lawyer. Okay. What's its bill rate? What's its per hour? Like if you <laughs> if I want to hire it how much is that going to cost me? With the old greenbacks, as they like to say. Oh, it only <laughs> accepts bitcoins because it's, art, it's artificial intelligence. Oh, yeah. So, well, thank you so much, uh, Andrew, for sharing three things about yourself. We're going to get into to our segment for, before we start talking about the room proper. Um, so, all three of us, sure, we're, we're white, cis, straight guys. But we, we all have uh, relationships. We all have significant others. I have a wife. Um, not to one-up you two. But I think you two, <laughs> I think you two have uh, uh, girlfriends, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we call them as friends. They're girls. They live with you. You haven't made any real commitment uh, <laughs> or anything like that. But they're around, right? Yeah, Aaron, 
I don't think you understand that as somebody who lives on the divide between Gen X and Millennials. But us Millennials don't get married. We just fuck. <laughs> oh, see, we just get married. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes. We fuck I mean, only I, for procreation. I'm just kidding. I wish I could have that. Yeah, no. I yeah, the, you don't fuck. Yeah, no. Why would I? <laughs> you think about um, it. It sounds uh, like it's really time consuming. Uh, Andrew actually posted something on Facebook about showing uh, his girlfriend this movie for the first time. And, and I knew that my wife had never seen it. And I asked uh, Peter if, if his girlfriend had never seen it. None of them had seen it before. So our idea for this was, hey, we're big fans of this. But it is like – it's like almost like a secret club within a secret club because – First, you have to have an appreciation for bad or unconventional movies, movies where you're getting hopefully uh, not laughing at, but getting an enjoyment for something that is not just this was just an enjoyable story or an enjoyable mood or enjoyable movie or a good way to pass a couple hours, but actually enjoying the craft of someone failing and how that makes very unique visions in a way that we normally don't see uh, due to something called competence that most people who are able to make movies possess. Uh, and then on top of that, within that, now that this is a pretty close, close circle Venn diagram, but still, then there are the people that uh, like The Room and know about The Room and and have seen it so many times that they could probably play it in their head uh, because – and read The Disaster Artist and probably obsessively read every inter- interview and trivia about it just because it is really a unique, uh, unique movie. So this felt like a really unique opportunity for us to be able to not just watch it again for this show but to kind of – Get a reaction, not just from people that haven't seen it, but people that we know, hopefully, pretty well, uh, and how that went. So let's let's just start that, guys. How how? Do, first of all, I guess it's important to note how much are. So my wife, for example, she she doesn't like Mystery Science Theater three thousand. She really movies to her are kind of like like most normal people. They're uh, a fun thing to do for a couple hours. They are not this thing to obsess over or record a weekly podcast on or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, it's just not how she uh, appreciates uh, movies. So the 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 concept of like Mystery Science Theater 3000 enjoying these types of movies is like why would you waste your time on bad movies when there are good ones you could watch. So that's kind of my wife's background in this type of movie watching. So she not only wasn't a fan, she really hadn't ever seen anything that approached this level of incompetence before. I don't think she was even aware that this type of movie really existed. So that's a little bit about uh, my wife's background. I'll tell you her reaction in more specifics. But what what about you guys? What was what was your uh, significant other's uh, reaction when we when you said, "Hey, can you watch this movie with me?" What is their background with uh, with bad movies? The great thing about this story for me is that this has been kind of a long time coming because I mentioned The Room on our second date and she will never let me forget that. Like every now and then she'll say something like, hey, remember that time on our second date when you brought up the fact that you love its terrible movie? That was a weird thing to do, wasn't it? And I'm like, yeah, I guess it, I guess it was. I guess, you know... Leading with uh, something that I love because of how terrible it is is kind of a weird move so early in the relationship. But yeah, my girlfriend's kind of like your wife, Erin, where uh, movies are something that she wants to enjoy. Yep. And 
Uh, she was a little perplexed as to why I could have such adoration for a bad movie, especially because I normally don't have a high tolerance for bad movies. Um, I could think of three that I really like, but that's about it. Let, name the other two. Um, uh, Jim Cotta. Jim Cotta. And... And Upside Down, which is amazing. <laughs> which um, which I have not seen. I know you messaged me about it, but yeah, I have not seen it. I, uh, yeah. It's so great. It's like a science fiction movie written by someone who flunked sixth grade science. I mean, that sounds amazingly appealing. Um, she, like, long ago said that, yeah, if you ever want to watch it, I'll, I'll watch it with you because it's obviously a big part of your life and <laughs> something something about you that you clearly want to share but i'm in no hurry to watch it and so when you guys asked me to be on the show i'm like oh great finally an excuse to to say hey i have to watch this for an assignment now's your chance and i told her this and she like thought for a second and said okay fine i guess i guess it's time to watch this how many, so how many, so how, if you don't mind me asking, how long have you guys been dating? Uh, coming up on three years. So three years, second date. So we're talking like five days in, we'll say, maybe six days. How long do you wait for the that second date? Uh, three days, I think. Three days. So three years, you have not been able to think of one excuse to watch this movie. And now it was uh, kind of a, I don't know, a surrender on her part, I guess, with a, okay, it's slightly. It's time now. Yeah, Aaron. She did pretty good though. Times in this Three show years. that I feel kind of sentimental. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of reflect back on the show and what we've accomplished with this thing. Uh-huh. Is this, <laughs> this one of them? Be our greatest accomplishment. Yeah. I might well, start crying. We saved Andrew. I'm assuming a proposal is coming right after <laughs> this show. Honey, yes. come in. Whatever the whatever the inverse of being torn apart is is what I want. To be done. If you really want to do it, I know this is a lot of pressure on short notice, but if she's going to listen to this episode with you, you could do a proposal at the end <laughs> and then be there with the ring. I'll take the silence as a no, so sorry if you're listening. <laughs> um, um, I think it's the best thing that could ever possibly happen to a relationship. You know what? There's nothing wrong with brainstorming, Andrew. All right. There's no wrong answers in brainstorming a proposal. So it's also uh, putting values on you and your girlfriend that you might not have. So um, anyways, uh, Peter, what was what was your girlfriend's reaction to? Hey, we're going to, I guess, watch this on YouTube because Netflix sent a broken disc. So my girlfriend's feelings about movies are typically... That she likes to watch good movies, I think is her thing. She doesn't tell. Oh, what's wrong with her? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know where I went wrong, but yeah, she mostly likes to watch good movies. And she usually likes like more conventionally good movies, which is makes it really easy when we want to watch like most stuff that I want to yeah. watch. But occasionally there's something where she's like, Why are you doing this for the show? And she was like, yep. and she knows that like we record for like two sometimes a little over two hours and then we end up editing it like for hours to like make sure it's like right and we post it and promote it she's like you spend that much time on this you made me watch this and like usually (laughs) usually at the movies i end up making her watch for the show are kind of whiffs or like newsies like she, (laughs) she didn't really like newsies at all yeah so for this her response was negative but like 
she was laughing at all the right beats. And I found that fascinating that like yep. the movie is so instantly memeable that a memer has to do like no work because like the, mo- the the craziest moments really do stand out with like a big like highlighter. She, she was like, she was like nothing past her as funny. I didn't have to like, pro- I was, I obviously wouldn't, but I wouldn't like, I didn't have to like prod her and be like, isn't that crazy that he said that? Like you have to do with some of these cult movies that you don't need context. You're just like, oh my God, you would never, what language are you speaking? Like what alien world is this man from? Uh, she did call Tommy Wiseau a long haired monster. <laughs> she said, yeah, my wife, my wife, yeah, my wife said that he is tough to look at. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She said I forget exa- disgusting. Um, she, the sex scenes. She said, "If you keep making me watch this, yep. we may never have sex again, <laughs> <laughs> or you may never start having sex." Right, Peter? Yes. Sorry. Correction. I before the movie started, I said, "Yeah, like, just letting you know, there are at I, I can never remember if there's three or four, but there are at least three very long sex scenes in this movie. So and I'm perfectly willing." To fast forward through them, I was. And my not. girlfriend says, "Like, oh no! Like, we need we need the full experience." And I go, "Well, it's 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 your funeral." I like that she's and, a purist. Yeah. yeah. And Tommy Wiseau shows up, and she's like, "Oh God, what's wrong with his face?" So so yeah. So my wife actually la- laughed a lot too, um, but it wasn't like a continuous thing. Like she, all the really good stuff, and I'm going to talk about this when we talk about the movie proper. But all the good stuff really doesn't get going for 20 minutes because it's like three yeah. sex scenes in the first 20 minutes. You don't really get the sense of the craziness till later. So getting to the that was like was tough. And then there's that moment at the dog or not the at the flower shop. And my wife burst out laughing. Uh, and then she was kind of getting we had into- to rewind that scene because, yeah, we were laughing so hard. Yeah, at that she, one. she was dying. But I feel like it was like waves. It was like someone going through some sort of like bender where she'd be she'd be happy, <laughs> she'd be laughing, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna so I took a couple notes on my wife as she was watching this. I'm gonna I'm gonna so run mad these I'm not editing this episode, Aaron. I'm gonna run these down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um I'm gonna run these down really quick to give you a sense of kind of what it was like watching it with her. After Tommy's first line of dialogue, she looked at me and said it was in all sincerity. I can't do this. <laughs> she said he's very hard to look at, uh, said that she felt very bad uh, for the actress playing Lisa during the first sex scene. Uh, she told me, again, all sincerity, she looked at me and said, I, I hate you 10 minutes into this movie, uh, I think during the second sex scene. The first laugh she actually got, not dying laughing, was when uh, Lisa first calls uh, Mark and he goes, you know, the, the I'm very busy. So she, and she started laughing at that. I'm like, okay, we're easing into something good here. Uh, in between that, she then said that porn stars are better actors than this. That she felt like everyone had to be trying to be this bad. She honestly, she just didn't understand how the acting was this bad. Uh, then she died laughing at the flower shop part. When I looked over at 45 minutes in, she had her face in her hands for about two straight minutes. At about an hour, I wrote that I think that she's actually angry at me. And then at about 105, she, I, I kind of felt like she started to be in it. And, and she was kind of in it to the end. She was fascinated. She was asking me questions. She was laughing a lot. Like something between like honestly looking at me like she was going to kill me and saying, can this be done? 
all of a sudden it flipped. Then by the 110 mark, she actually cracked a joke that was, uh, but Johnny's my best friend. (laughs) So, like, she was starting to actually do a little bit of the Mystery Science Theater 2000 thing where she was throwing back these lines of the characters. Uh, But at the end of the movie, she said, I'm not rating it because she rates her movies, too. Uh, on a star rating after we're done watching it, but she said, I'm not rating it, and I'm going to forget I ever saw it. But then, she wanted to watch, I told her there's a movie coming out, she was dying laughing at the trailer to the disaster artist, and then started asking me all these other questions. So I think I'm going to have no problem with her wanting to see the disaster artist. I think she's really going to want to see that. So, I think it was, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it was a weird, like, it was a real mix of emotions, but I think one of, one of the ways this movie succeeds that we're going to talk about is that it's very weird in a fascinating way. So even though this is not like her milieu, not something she really enjoys doing is watching these movies that are that are kind of poorly made, the the oddness of everything, I think, ultimately at least won her over on the, man, this is weird. Yeah, I think that the same is true uh, with me where my girlfriend is interested in the disaster artist now. And like she said that she never really needs to see the movie again, but she she did find it amusing. I think my the, my favorite thing that happened was after the second sex scene, because I, I so it's been a while since I've seen this. So I've forgotten that the first couple of sex scenes happened so early in the movie in such quick succession. And so after the second sex scene, she says, wait. What's this movie even about? Same All I could question. say was same question. All I could say was who's to say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I I warned my I warned my wife. I'm like, look, there's gonna be like 15, 10 minutes where it's just like a couple sex scenes that go on way too long and like the real weird stuff, you get you gotta get past all that. The really out there stuff. But it wasn't ten minutes, it was twenty minutes. And yeah. there was not two, there was three in those first twenty minutes. So you're right, Andrew, there is four. Because there, okay. there's one There's one more later in the there's movie. There's one more later in the movie. But there's the Mark one and the two Johnny ones in the first twenty minutes of this movie, and there's five minutes of credits. So it yeah. is just it's but- so it's so much. So much. Well, I want to talk about so that much. more in in the movie proper. But I was yeah. asked if this. I was asked if this was a bad porno. That like we were actually watching a bad porno, and I was like, I took me a minute to be like, no, we're we're not. Right? No, this is a good porno. <laughs> it does literally take. It does literally take like the entire first act to get past the movie establishing just like the movie keeps establishing that we're in san francisco the movie keeps establishing that these characters are having sex well this yeah. movie this movie's greatest strength is the fact that it establishes things everything <laughs> like do but you, poorly do you, no but it like yeah poorly but it's great strength that it it, it, it makes sure that is it is established like lisa does not like johnny and for a good hour and 20 minutes she tells everyone that walks into that fucking room that she's not a fan of johnny <laughs> well so i i i think like my final the final thing i want to say about my girlfriend's first experience with this movie her summation of it was you know it's as if an alien came to earth to try and document human behavior and then make a movie about like basic human drama. Yeah. Which made me laugh because that's the plot of the Flash uh, video game based on the movie. Yeah. That is that is a very common, very accurate reaction because Johnny yeah. doesn't feel like 
Johnny doesn't feel like an immigrant so much. Like, you don't feel like you're laughing at, like, an immigrant being goofy. You feel like you're laughing at a space alien. Like, yeah. there's no culture in which the way Johnny acts that is okay. <laughs> well, I think that's why even, like, that that conversation that eventually recounts the state fair with uh, Peter and Johnny and Mark uh, that ends with the first, you're just chicken, cheap, 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 cheap. That was, I think, like, it was about it's about four or five minutes long. But I, I think it was exhausting to her because every sentence that anyone said felt like they hadn't really – like it was it was off as a response. It felt like everyone was having a different conversation. And the level of how that maintains for that long, that, that's where she had her, her face in her hands because there was like an element of exhaustion that was like, is this like a stress test? Is this a, a Tim and Eric sketch? Where they're just trying to, like, see how long you can break before going, stop it. Someone listen and respond like a normal human being. So much of how these characters interact is if you took basic ideas of human interaction and kept simplifying them to a point beyond where they made any sense. Because, like, they're going through... you You can definitely see... These ideas that he's trying to get at, but his understanding of interaction is so limited that it's it's like if you had a bunch of Legos and you were trying to put them together into a coherent building, but all you could do was like have a pile of Legos. Like you could see the individual bricks, they just don't amount to anything. Yeah, that's that's perfect because it just it doesn't fit and it doesn't fit in a very unique way. So I think this was kind of exhausting on some level for yeah, there's something about it that while odd and fascinating, it also like your body rejects it like it's a like a like a foreign disease, like a foreign invader into your body, into your brain trying to worm its way and make you understand something that like every human interaction that you are aware of um it rejects it. Like I said, I think she's going to I think she's going to be very excited to see the disaster artist cuz when she found out there was a book, she was asking me all these questions. Did you guys mention the disaster artist to your uh, significant others? I did, which I think helped keep her along the way that like this was this is something that's so notable. It's not yeah. something that nobody cares about. Like James <laughs> Franco. James Fra- like, James Franco, you know James James Franco. He's doing it. Yeah. So it's not just me. Look, James Franco <laughs> likes it. I'm just like James Franco. <laughs> but I, I I brought it up and I would pause every now and then to throw in some trivia from the disaster artist. I don't know. I, I, as I said, I think she wants to see the movie. I don't know if she's going to read the book, but I would talk about how the relationship between Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero in the book is surprisingly poignant. Yeah. And, you know, she looked up Sestero afterwards and like learned a little bit about you know what he's been up to and what their relationship is because she didn't believe me when I said that they had this weird it's it's a parasitic friendship but it's kind of parasitic in both directions and she she had trouble wrapping her head around that because she thought well how could anyone leech off of of Wiseau? and so like I feel I I explained a little bit about you know what Wiseau did for Sestero and we found out that they're doing a new movie together. Yeah, that they're co-writing, and I, I I eventually watched the trailer. Sestero seems like a fine enough actor. I have no interest in seeing this, just like I have no interest in seeing that TV show he neighbors. did that I think was yeah. on Hulu. Yeah, neighbors. Because 
the like I don't want to see anything where he's in on the joke. No, exactly. And that's and we'll talk about this in a sec. That's really what I think makes this not just unique in movies, but like the the people involved in making this are never going to be able to repeat it, which I think is why it actually makes it more of a diamond like when you see a good Scorsese movie, he like him getting better at his craft and being more aware of his actors and everything else, like that's a strength for the next Scorsese movie. Like he's going to bring even more to bear on that one. Uh, for for this, it's really like you don't get two, you get the one. If this is like the type of filmmaker that you are, so the you you know you bring up a good incompetent filmmaker. I know that in a lot of film circles, there's a lot of discussion about. A tourism and wanting to see a director's vision unhampered by like studio demands or like outside forces. And I truly believe that there will never be a more altruistic and pure vision than The Room because he was so unconcerned. No one else could tell him what to do or how to do things. And his like his psyche is so present in this movie. Yeah. You know, even like a good, competent director whose studios give a lot of slack to are beholden to other interests, whether it's budget or like the like the needs of their co-workers. Like Tommy Wiseau was a monster on set. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And- uh, so before we were I know it's so hard with this movie not to just get right into it. Because uh, there's so much uh, to talk about. So before I say, before we transition fully, any any other thoughts from the from the girlfriends, from the significant others about uh, about this movie that we should share before we we talk about our reaction to the room? Uh, I think that I think that my girlfriend's reaction to the movie was mostly based in the fact that. She was so baffled by what she was seeing that she just had to laugh at it as, like, an office-esque awkward comedy. And then whenever the movie got bogged down and plotting, and, like, the third act of this movie is just, like, bleak and sad and, like, really wrong. She just, like, yeah. kind of – she just kind of fell asleep somewhere in the last 20 minutes. She's just like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna check out. <laughs> Did you tell her what happens uh, at the end? Uh, yeah, I, I was like, I was like, oh, you commits suicide. She's like, oh, I guess that checks out. No, <laughs> it doesn't. Does it? My wife was very into the. He's humping that dress. I think. <laughs> Is he humping that dress? So. I had to point that out, like, because I. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, I didn't really pick up on it for who knows what reason. And so when I pointed it out this time, my girlfriend's like, "Wait, really?" And we rewound a bit, and she's like, "Oh yeah, I see it now." My but, wife. So I don't know what this tells you about my wife. She, but Tommy got like half a hump, and she's like, "He's humping that dress." So, my wife has seen some dress humping in her day, is what I'm saying. This is a dangerous episode to do this on because my wife has listened to maybe, like, two of these. But there's, like, a at least a 75% chance that she's listening to this one because yeah. she actually watched the movie. And she yeah. knew that we, we were going to be discussing her thoughts about it. And I loved her thoughts on it, especially the uh, hump-related thought because uh, – <laughs> This movie, we'll get into it, but this movie is a very complicated relationship with um, Tommy Wiseau's feelings of sex and relationships. And like, oh boy. he for sure, for sure probably entered into a little bit of a horny mode when he was smelling that dress. Yeah, well, it's probably based on his real life dress humping, like everything in this movie. <laughs> well, so, oh, so I guess my last 
my last thing is I think two thirds of the way through, my girlfriend turns to me and says, "Okay, who is the real woman that this is based on?" Yeah, yeah. Because you know, there's someone out there who probably didn't do anything that bad, but to him, he considers that she shattered him. And I have to know. And she like my girlfriend's like, I have to know who she is and what exactly she did. Because it's probably nothing, but it was everything to him. It it was almost certainly nothing, because this movie reads like every unself-aware guy who is, like, terrible. Uh, You know, their girlfriend, rightfully, or whatever, is like, oh, hey, yeah, you know know you're terrible, uh, and you do this, and you do this, and I don't want to be a part of this anymore and then like that that guy ends up spending the next five years of his life like complaining about uh, women ghostbusters and and feeling like he got betrayed and that all women are evil this is like this is like that movie but in a interesting twist it is just as like mockable and ill-conceived and like the vision of what was done to him is so off and wrong that it almost like probably accurately reflects like that state of mind if that makes sense like like he it's like oh yeah well clearly this is not what happened because no human beings act like that this is the version you're telling yourself in your head you you gotta get some help buddy like it is that reflected on screen it is one of the most misogynistic movies I've ever seen. It thinks all women are, like, conniving on some level and, like, well, no women are honest. What's uh, what's Mark's line? It's something like, some are too dumb, some are too evil. Um, no, so it's like, yeah, some are one. fine. But, like, it's like some are fine or some are too smart. Some are yeah, too dumb too smart. and some are too evil. Like, yeah. what's missing from that dichotomy is, like, there's no some are too good. It's just they're either smart but like smart, like in a way but that's threatening. Yeah, smart's a yeah. bad thing because uh, they're too smart, uh, which is not based on Mark's character. Not hard to pass that to pass that barometer. What um, are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right, you guys ready to talk about the room? Yeah, let's talk about the room. Peter, you are alternate taglines. Alternate taglines. Um, yeah, I mean, like, there's like, uh, uh, what is there? <laughs> there's like, there's oh, everything. you want to be in the room where it happens? Don't worry, that is already the song that everyone heard at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Make room for Tommy. M- make room for Tommy. That is just a picture of his. Big face on the cover. How about parentheses? There's actually two because there's a bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the room. Second room free. Yeah, the room. Most of it takes place on the roof. I've yeah. been I've been had sex on by a rose. The seal song. <laughs> well, one of those weird R and B songs from the sex scenes is all about roses. Yeah, there's f- every time. It's like the only time he's ever seen anyone like kiss someone is in a porn because every time he starts kissing it's like boom music well, starts 
It's it's also another indicator that he only experiences things through their most basic. Yeah. Like so so like roses are something that you give to people that you love. And so that's why roses show up a lot. And then there's that that famous scene with Mike and Michelle yeah. where he says, like, did you know that chocolate is the symbol of love? <laughs> yeah, so then he's like, I don't know. Is, well, what does that mean? He, I don't know, throw, like, a piece of chocolate on her neck and eat it off it? Oh, yeah, doesn't Mike fuck. eat the chocolate that he was offering to fuck. Michelle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he's not like he's not like pours chocolate. He just like sets the chocolate on her neck and then yeah. eats it. <laughs> yeah, it's so bizarre. Okay, <laughs> so much to talk about. Ninety second recap, quick. So it's basically about Johnny, all American guy, uh, and he is going to get married to Lisa, who you know they they just have such a good relationship. They're about to get married. They have all these friends. Jobs going pretty good. Then things take a a little bit of a downward turn. Johnny gets fucked over by the bank. Right then, all of a sudden, Lisa's like, "Don't love him anymore." Yeah, I thought he works for computers. That's Lisa, supposedly. Yeah, Lisa's oh, Lisa's okay. the com- Lisa's the computers. Uh, oh, she but there's no computers. money in it. There's no money in computers. There's no so money she in computers. Re- yeah, so she has to rely on Johnny for support. Which again More is another thing device. that like that like broad strokes like Tommy probably literally thinks like there's no money in computers. There is money at the bank. Because there's yeah. there's money at the bank, so that's there's why there's money, money at the, the bank. bank because there's money at it. <laughs> so yeah, so things start taking a downward turn. Lisa all of a sudden decides, "Don't really love Johnny. I'm gonna go have sex with. Um, I don't know. Are they I'm trying to think? They're like they're like acquaintances? No, kind of friends. It's it's her boyfriend's best friend. So you think you think they're best friends? Well, they're friends when they start. John, they, Johnny you, and Mark. Yeah. Like yeah, what do you, what would, how would you characterize their relationship? I mean, my best friend. Them, but they're definitely best friends. They play football together. Uh, mm. I mean, they they live in the same wedding. building. Do, you, do they play football together though, or do they just play catch? <laughs> I, I you know I think they play football as much as you know. Sometimes movies have to do a little bit of a, a minimizing. Of, of a larger activity. I think that that's, that's supposed to be a stand-in, a sort of theatrical stand-in for them playing full-on football. Yeah, use your imagination. <laughs> well, I mean, their their relationship goes down hard where Lisa calls after the birthday. I, I hate that guy now. Or what, is, what does he say? I'm done with him. I'm he over says, him now. He says, I don't like him anymore. That's like, what it is. Yeah. Like he, that's like what it is. Paul Rudd in, yeah. uh, like he's Paul Rudd in What Had American Summer. No. Like, you taste like burger. I don't <laughs> yeah. like you anymore. Yeah. I don't, and, oh, that guy? I don't like him anymore. And Mark is for sure accidentally, nobody could be really coded on purpose except for J- Johnny is trying to be coded as an all-American guy. He likes football and he's got... He's a big business monkey, and he likes to he likes to have a good time. But you know, he doesn't drink, and he's unsettlingly unsettlingly ripped. Uns, unco- he looks like he's just like a, a condom full of snakes. You know what else? Like Tommy Wiseau thinks that his his butt penetrating someone looks amazing. Like he is like when my butt does that thing where I'm like thrusting. Oh, it looks great. Because there's at least 30 seconds of just straight butt squeezing just just into it. A part of my soul died when when I saw Tommy Wiseau's butt. <laughs> you, get to see it, you get to see it a lot, so you don't have any soul left. All Pretty parts much. of it have died. Okay, so anyway, so Lisa, Lisa has sex with, with Mark uh, and then does that throughout the rest of the movie. 
while very slowly telling everyone in her life over and over again that she's going to break up with Johnny, but then occasionally saying a bunch of really nice things about him. Uh, with so with very, a sincere face. With a very sincere face. Um, and then it all comes to a head at Johnny's big birthday party with, You invited all my friends. Good, good idea. idea. Yeah, good yeah. thinking. Good yeah. thinking. Good thinking. They, uh, Mark and Johnny start fighting. Mark basically admits that, hey, if you weren't awful, Lisa wouldn't have to go to me uh, for sex. And they 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 separate. Johnny's very depressed. And that's when Johnny thinks he's going to prove that Lisa is in love and having sex with Mark, even though he's overheard her say that exact thing to her mother. And he just had a fight with Mark about it at the birthday party where Mark admitted to having sex with Lisa. But now he's going to get a tape recorder. He's going to prove it. He proves it. He says, why does everyone hate me? He goes up into his room. He kills himself. And then for like five minutes. Everyone's um, sad. Everyone's really sad. Uh, Including the people that hated him and said they were done with him and didn't like him anymore. Yeah. And then, of course, of course. Uh, the real loser is Lisa, because even though Mark, his best friend, betrayed him, Mark also gets to go, you did this. You're the worst. He was my never best friend. had me. That's not just Mark. That's the movie saying that. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's I don't think there's such thing as laughable misogyny. But like this, this gets about as close to you can get is like even a misogynist would be like, that's a little. <laughs> unfair i think like you know i i hate women and like, think that they're yeah i mean i of course i hate women and think they're lesser but this is just ignoring the facts of the situation <laughs> like, even if you think that in your heart you keep it to your goddamn self because you just discovered a suicided corpse yeah so i mean you, if you're listening to this you've probably seen the broom uh so i feel like that's enough you know so peter and i um we talked about in some previous episodes that we really want to talk about this from a different perspective and we kind of touched on it a little in the the segment uh where we're talking about our uh significant others reaction and that is i i think you've probably heard people say actually the room's a good movie and i don't know good movie's not the right word it's not a good movie in the sense that it is follows the the concept or the ideas of of good filmmaking, and it has a lot of stuff that you are laughing at and not with. Its ideas are all garbage. But what I kind of want to start out this by talking about is that it definitely fits all of the my metrics for like a five star movie because it is endlessly rewatchable it's endlessly quotable the first time i saw it all i want to do is watch it again the first time i saw it all i want to do is find out everything i could about the movie it is as enjoyable scene to scene as most movies i've watched so while it is it's it's incompetence that shines through it really is as andrew mentioned kind of a a unique and one-of-a-kind artifact that I think it really separates it from a lot of the other uh, quote-unquote bad movies. Like, who goes around and watches Manos or Red Zone Cuba or Birdemic all the time? Uh, I, I have kind of a confession to make. I, I watched um, the MST3K Manos, The Hands of Fate, and I was really bored. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a really boring movie. Like, it's a lot to overcome because the movie is very grindy. Mystery and Mystery Science Theater three thousand takes it kind of it's it's a great when it's at its best. It's this great fusion of art. It takes these unwatchable movies and makes them watchable by commenting on how unwatchable they are. And when Mystery Science Theater three thousand or Riff Tracks or whatever else fails, it's because they are distracting from 
what's interesting on screen. That could be in the form of like when Riff Tracks does their things that they should never do, which is let's make fun of Casablanca. Who cares? We're just having a laugh. But it's like, well, you know what's better than your dumb jokes? Casablanca. And yeah. where where it also failed was I saw them uh, it was like my fifth or sixth time seeing the movie. But I again I saw that I saw them do the room in a in a theater. And those theater showings are always a lot of fun, at least because you're seeing it with an audience. I think the audience turned on the Mystery Science Theater three thousand jokes, the Rift Tracks jokes pretty quickly and it was like you know and actually i think we just don't want to sit together and watch the room is there a way to turn them off because all of the laughs were coming from the movie not from the comments so i think good bad loses a little bit of its luster but i do think it is unique and i do think it is kind of one of a kind and i do think it is as watchable and as enjoyable as the best of the best movies out there. I mean, I've seen The Room probably like 10 or 12 times now, which would be more than Citizen Kane and The Godfather combined. And every time I am having a blast. So what I really don't want this podcast to be, even though obviously we're going to make jokes, because a lot of the reason we like it is that it has a bunch of ridiculous moments, and that's what's appealing. But it's I don't want it to be like every other Room podcast where it's why this movie is so good is that every scene is unique in the way that it doesn't make any fucking sense and people don't know how to talk to each other and moments don't work. Like, well, so few scenes make sense in the context of the greater whole of the greater whole. Like half the scenes just repeated, like repeat previous scenes. The like the advice that they always give is don't worry about it. So nothing ever moves yeah. forward. Uh, to me, like this movie transcends good and bad because I would never call it a good movie for lots of reasons, but it's just so fascinating to watch. I mean, to me, it's it's a psychological profile, not a movie. Like, that's, that's, it's, that's perfect. It, its yeah. politics are absolute garbage, but I think it it's very informative about those kinds of sexual politics because they're a gross misogyny taken to its absurd extreme. Yeah, this is like the mo- this is like a movie that's truly in the mind of a serial killer, but instead of serial killing, he made a movie. Like they should give this to FBI profilers or something once, you know, we- people start to realize that online MRAs are a bigger problem than we think they are. Like maybe not like FBI level problem, but you know, I'd go FBI level. Why not? <laughs> They're the worst. Yeah, well, I guess based on, you know, yeah, based on the last couple of years, maybe, yeah, FBI level. This is essentially, if you took this at face value, this is MRA propaganda, men's rights activist propaganda, because it basically has, like, a view of women that it just keeps hammering into. And as the movie goes on, the women get worse at the at this sort of uh, yeah these these offenses against Johnny and Johnny gets like almost more noble and like when Johnny calls Lisa a bitch I genuinely don't think the movie thinks that's a bad thing that scene is so uncomfortable it's very uncomfortable and Mark calls uh, her that at the end too like when he's yeah. walking away from her it's... while he's while while she's cradling uh, Johnny's body body she he calls her a bitch it's very clear that it's him realizing the truth. And getting back at her in the way she deserves. And so, I mean, a lot of, like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is cringy. But I think that's one of the few things, aside from the nudity, that makes me, like, shiver. 
because of how cruel it is. And not just, you know, in like, not like cruel in universe, but just it's Tommy Wiseau's worst impulses shining through at um, at their brightest. Like you said, it's it's a pure auteurist vision and maybe the purest auteurist vision we will see because it is like, essentially just about his thoughts about women and his thoughts about society. One thing I forgot to mention when I was saying that is you know, like the great directors, one reason they'll never will never get like their purest vision is that something that uh, holds them back is narrative convention. And Tommy Wiseau, sure as hell, is not held back by narrative convention. And studios. And like money. Like someone has a boss. Tommy literally had no boss. He was his own marketing. He was his own promotional. He was his own editor. Like there was no one else at any stage of the process that had – it was his money. Like it's – that level of control is impossible even to people with final cut. The death of the author kind of thing is is particularly interesting here because it becomes a farce of that sort of men's rights activist uh, point of view because it's so ridiculous and so juvenile. But it is also, from like my perspective, like a more humanist perspective, it's also heartbreaking that this is how Tommy Wiseau thinks about relationships. And this is, this is Tommy Wiseau basically saying that he feels so alone because wild guess, I agree with your girlfriend, Andrew, wild guess, some, a girl hurt him really badly. And... This is his strange, twisted perspective on on the events. And so, like, the interesting thing is, like, what you were saying is is that, like, directors are bound by narrative convention when they want to make these sort of auteurist visions. Like, they want to make something that at least resembles a movie, even if it's uh, all of the pieces are custom fit to this director's vision. This is interesting because he doesn't understand the conventions before he, he completely throws them out. Like, yeah. So- it's you have to know the rules to break the rules, and he yeah. doesn't understand rule one. Like, what's the op- What's the opposite of this movie? Is it like Dark Knight Rises, where like the movie itself doesn't really make sense, but like all the pieces kind of flow together nicely, and so you never. It takes you like a day before you get out. Like you're done with Dark Knight Rises, and you it takes you like a day later, and you're like, wait. How to get in the city? I, it's because Nolan is such a fucking hero yeah. that he can—he just like understands the. He has such a command of conventional. He, he knows what you're not going to think about. I want to go back though to something you said, Peter, because I honestly think, um, and this almost seems like a joke, but it—it it might not be. Like I almost get the sense from this movie that maybe there wasn't even like a relationship one because I can't really picture. Tommy Wiseau in a relationship, but also because, like, this movie and how it presents Johnny, it almost seems to come from a place of someone who, like, do you think that the as as portrayed in this movie, that Tommy Wiseau is someone who has actually ever, like, even kissed a girl in real life? Like, this, this is so juvenile and so, like, rub your finger and nose into it. About about how someone has wronged them. It almost comes across to me as like someone who didn't even have the relationship. They were so delusional. Had a crush on someone, asked them out, and they said no. And then built up this idea that, well, if I – if they – I'm so glad they said no to me because what a – 
what a terrible person or, you know, and if they had dated me, I'm sure we'd be about to get married and then they'd, they, I'd have a bad day at work and then they'd reject me and then that would be so good because that's what women do in the end. So I'm glad it didn't even start. Like, that's the level of like juvenile idea of relationships and women that like this almost has a sense of not even like a relationship gone bad that he's trying to work through. But like uh, the girl I like didn't date me aren't women horrible level of relationship i would wager that he was never in a relationship that got to the point where they were future husband and future wife in the parlance of this movie's terms i i I wouldn't be surprised if he went out on a few dates with someone here and there uh and then utterly scared them away Based like on, this is this is not a movie of someone who was in a relationship where no. he lived with someone and then was like share. This is like a fantasy of someone who was rejected early by someone very correctly and who projected like uh, the terrible relationship they would have had and how he's lucky that it didn't even go that far because they would have eventually driven him to suicide. I would guess that you know he probably, as I said, went out on a couple of dates. After after he got the money that he somehow amassed through who knows what means, he probably showered them with like, gifts and roses and good restaurants or whatever he thinks is a good restaurant and couldn't understand why they wouldn't want to be with someone who could provide for them and who would yeah. go out of who would go out of their way to spend hard-earned money on a stranger. That's one line of MRA reasoning. That I'm sure Tommy was so is thinking of when he thinks about like why why are these women treating me like this because I'm providing I'm I'm spending my money on them shouldn't they love me that is a hundred percent true because the the twisted thinking of a men's rights activist doesn't necessarily um, line up with reality even in cold hard events even at the length of the relationship or the seriousness of the relationship, like for a girl, it might be very casual. And so their, their breakup is just like, eh, it didn't work. We're moving on. And then for the guy, he's like, I put, I invested in you. I put yeah. money in like, and it, it becomes this, it, it's, it's misogyny writ large, right? The idea that you could buy women, uh, even though, you know, this is no longer, this is no longer, you know, an arranged There's no more thing. dowries. Yeah, there's no more dowries. And also, you know, she's not actually like, a, you know, a sex slave that you bought on the open market. But the idea that, like, men are trying to, on this, like, weird open market, still buy women and still think that, like, by giving women these, these gifts and favors that are just, like, are part of the deal of meeting and bonding with people. That's also why a lot of women are feel uncomfortable not splitting the check after a date or feel uncomfortable like accepting these gifts is because like they feel like you're doing them a favor. Uh, well, it feel it, and unfortunately, a lot of you know, a lot of guys actually think that like accepting a gift or accepting a bill is like a statement of intent. Like yeah. you've signed some sort of contract, and by you not kissing them goodnight or calling them again, that you've actually broken the contract. When it's like 
anyone who does like something nice and expects something back by definition is not doing something nice. You know, they're trying to exchange money for goods and services. In this case, services is like a kiss on the cheek or a promise for another date. But what they what they're the service that they're trying to exchange for is like a human being. And it's fucking disgusting and gross and sick. That is like way beyond like MRAs. That is just like a common thing that that men think that they, they buy the dinner. It's the whole, like, I'm owed this because, well, you know, like, I got your dinner and I was nice to you and I treated you well, so what do I get out of it? Yeah, like, as if women are some process. Missing the very big point that if your motivation for buying that dinner was an investment in a human being as if they were a commodity, you are, by definition, not a nice guy. So your nice gesture is... A terrible gesture, and you should be ashamed at yourself. So, it just on that note, um, it's not just the misogyny. Obviously, this movie is very misogynistic, and like Aaron and I said, and I'm gonna add to, and I, I don't think Aaron will follow me on this. It reminds me almost of Death Wish Three. I was gonna say takes, the same thing. Yes, it takes these these. Uh, I think it's a better example than Death Wish Three. I, it, it takes these concepts of, you know, these, these, these inner thoughts of the creator and expresses them with this megaphone and this pure vision in a way that, like, is so ridiculous and lacks any nuance that it becomes a parody of itself because it's it's essentially like it feels like a Starship Troopers thing almost. Yeah. Where you're like, you're like, am I... Is this – are you making fun of how insane men are when they feel like a sense of ownership over a woman? But it, or, or on the flip side, not even a parody, not even a satire. Just like is this just like a pure undistilled like fever dream of a misogynistic man? Like this is what I think about when my girlfriend decides that she's going out to dinner with a friend. Like I guess the misogyny is just one facet of this. I, I think there's a lot of facets that basically lead to the point that Tommy Tommy was so basically created a – a fever dream of a lot of his negative feelings about people and about society. And yeah, it's not well, just yeah. misogyny. Well, that's, I mean, what satire is, is taking something and exaggerating it to prove the point. It's not, you know, satire, parody. You're not actually like coming out against the thing. You're taking the thing, stretching it to its logical conclusion and using that stretched out version like Silly Putty where it's the holes are more visible. You can see through Silly putty when you've stretched it far enough. I hope this metaphor is not too ridiculous. Well, it's also really telling of the his his conception of him as a good person and what being a good yeah. person is. Because to him, a good person is someone who you know pays for everything in his in his friends' lives, but also is above criticism. Yeah. Because I always think about the scene where he's asking Peter. For advice and at first Peter's like well I don't know if you know I should give you my advice on this and Johnny's like oh well you're a psychiatrist you like you you know how to give advice and then when he gets advice he doesn't like he chastises Peter for quote playing psychiatrist and then calls him a chicken for not doing something and we're still supposed to see him as this wonderful person well exactly and that's you know, that's why, you know, we talked about, like, how misogynistic this movie is, and we're I'm sure we're going to talk about how terrible he's portrayed is, but why that that still works with, uh, with us saying that this is some sort of one-of-a-kind 
you know, masterpiece in its own right or something like that is because it is it this is so beyond what anyone who was trying to come up with a satire of misogyny of like what being a good person is anyone who was like trying to make a comedy version of a good version of the room couldn't come up with this with something that that undercuts the the creator's point more than this actual thing so why it is this like little mini miracle it goes farther to contradict the ideas this movie is showing than any like actual parody and that's why it does work is this ridiculous tome of misogyny and the way human beings interact and the way friendship is supposed to work and what it means to be a friend like it it, it gets all of those things wrong so so hard gets it wrong so hard it, it it works even better than something like a death wish three as like the actual thing is more ridiculous than any parody could be well and i'm sure that charles bronson and anyone involved in death wish three has some degree of shame or self-awareness where they they realize like well i need to hold back a little bit whether for like marketing reasons or because like even i don't think things should go that far whereas you know, Tommy Wiseau is definitely not worried about holding anything back. Yeah, the Tommy Wiseau version of Death Wish 3, uh, the gangs are not called creeps, I think is the difference. <laughs> so I will say that, um, so on the character front, part of my obsession with this movie is trying to figure out how, like, which lines were either ad-libbed or thrown in by the script supervisor, because there are some things that Claudette, who's Lisa's mother... There are some things that she says that are actually pretty uh, smart and yeah. uh, un- understandable. And I'm like, okay, so either the actress is throwing those in or the script supervisor is adding those in because there's no way that Tommy Wiseau came up with those on his own. I don't know why I'm looking for character continuity from a person written by Tommy Wiseau. Every, I mean, every character kind of is, like, some facet of Tommy Wiseau, except for the women, right? Yeah. Like, Peter is the, the um, you know, logical, uh, you know, psychologist character that people give shit to because, uh, well, for one, he's a nerd character to make fun of. Like, he doesn't want to play football in their tuxedos, and then he falls over, and they, and he gets up, and they all go home. Like he, well, and he, and he leaves, he leaves the movie. Yeah, is, he leaves that's it, the best. I'm done. He, he, um, yeah. And then they were, and then he, I think the actor, and Peter is probably the best actor in the movie. Yeah. Um, he leaves. Peter or Chris R? I think Chris R is okay. Chris R is amazing. Chris R is pretty yeah. convincing. Yeah. Pretty spooky. He, he was uh, the only one on set who could bully Tommy Wiseau. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, as long as we mention it, because I don't know if we'll get a chance to come back. But the, the, the funniest thing in this movie to me that I cannot get over anytime I watch it and like I was struggling for breath even even watching it this time is when Peter leaves and then at the birthday party scene is is there's a new character who clearly was supposed to be Peter, but no one yep. ever comments that it's not Peter. No one no one calls him by that name, but he's just this new person in the in the last act of the movie that everyone knows, but is looks nothing like Peter. So that's the joke the first time you see it, and it's really funny. Subsequent viewings, it's made even more funny by it almost seems like Tommy must be self aware because every line they give this character 
that no one has ever seen before is all about how he knows them. They're his friends. Like, it's all about every single one of his lines contingent on the fact that he is a character that Tommy knows and trusts. Like, all of his lines reference that. And the fact that they give it to a character who you've never seen before is like a version of, I know it's not self-awareness, but that's the only point in the movie gets so underlining and circling its ridiculousness that I that I am like, okay, like, this is too on the nose at being off, where he's like, come on, don't you recognize us? We're your friends. We all care about you. Like, someone had to have been like, this is ridiculous. Oh, everyone on set was saying yeah, it was no, ridiculous. I know. It was just that no one could, as I said, the only person who could you know, push Tommy around was the actor that played Chris R, who his 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 first name is Dan. His last name is something I'm going to mispronounce because I'm terrible. But yeah, I, I think that Tommy Wiseau might have thought he was a real drug dealer at one point. One of my favorite anecdotes in The Disaster Artist is the story of how in the first draft of The Room, which was originally going to be a play, there's a scene where... Lisa's talking to her mom, and she's on the phone with her mom. And at the end of the scene, when Lisa's saying goodbye to her mom, she shows her mom to the door and closes the door because Tommy Wiseau had forgotten that the scene started with the two talking on the phone. The, like, the fact that she would say, like, oh, you need to get ready for the party, and then a day passes, and that the references to the party come out of nowhere... That that doesn't seem weird to me in the sense in like the context of the movie. Yeah, there you know, is just, a little bit, though, that we're like the party just keeps going on. Like the mentions of the party go on so long that you're like, is this is this like waiting for Godot, but for Johnny's birthday party? And there's like three establishing shots in between different scenes at the party. Yeah, like he was spending money on everything. I, I, I doubt that he thought to himself, oh, I don't have the budget to do a wedding scene. Like he, you know, he bought state-of-the-art cameras to, to film in both uh, SD and HD at the same time. Like the, the, um, the filmmaking hardware corporation loved him because, you know, studios just rent equipment because... Yeah, he bought they, it. <laughs> yeah, he bought everything. He's, you know, things... Like technology's changing so fast that it doesn't make sense to buy cameras, even for major studios. So because yeah. he wanted yeah, to have the cameras on hand when he filmed his sequel, The House. <laughs> yeah, there there was no, <laughs> you know, he was the John Hammond of the room. He was sparing no expense unless it was inconvenient to him, which is why he didn't buy a generator. And Claudette's actress got heat stroke. The 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 logic of the movie, as we've just pointed out, the logic of the movie is non-existent. Except for the only through line that you can have is is experience this as a character piece, which the title sort of like hints at weirdly, like not intentionally, but it hints at weirdly, which is like the room. It's like sounds like a stage play, right? Like it's just gonna be a simple stripped down drama, but instead it has like a drug dealer who, you know, he's going straight to jail. Yeah, I like that Tom said, let's take him to jail. Yeah, well, citizens arrest. It, I don't know if it, you've read the Constitution, Mr. Lawyer, but uh, <laughs> the, the the 19th Amendment clearly states that uh, any time uh, Tommy Wiseau arrests somebody, they just go straight to jail. 
No he, trial. His idea of the court system is playing Monopoly. Well, now yes. you go to jail. Directly to jail. So... Because, yeah, the, so the Chris R. disappears from the movie after threatening Denny because they couldn't figure out any other way to make Denny interesting. So here's another thing that's weird about this movie. Doesn't Denny, like, disappear until the final scene? After yeah, he's, he's back at the end when Johnny dies. I don't think he's at the birthday party. He's Why not. He, yeah, he's not at the birthday party. And he's uh, – and if he is, he's at for, like, he's half He's background at best. Yeah. yeah. So How happens? old do we think Denny is? Well, he's, at, he's in college. So – He's at least supposed to be 18. Uh, he's so creepy and so wrong, that, and yet he's supposed to be this, like, relatable scamp that you want to take care of. He was also one of the oldest cast members. Yeah, yeah. He just had a boy face. Yep. Um, and the, so the scene, it comes off really weird in the scene where he's, like, telling Johnny that he wants to fuck Lisa. And Johnny's just like, haha, don't worry about it. Because the whole movie is people saying, Lisa saying, I don't want to talk about it after initiating a conversation on a very intimate topic. Yeah, and Johnny saying, haha, what a story. Or haha, uh, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Like, that's the whole movie is people just passing up drama. But hold on, what you're saying is that, hold on, let's break this case wide open. <laughs> I think what you're saying is that Johnny and Lisa are perfect for each other because Johnny doesn't really want to hear the story because everything's going to be fine. And Lisa doesn't really want to tell the story. I I also realize on this viewing, probably because it was the first viewing after I got into this this other thing, that Johnny has the sense of humor and the laugh cadence of a Dark Souls NPC. <laughs> Yeah, it's all like creepy laughs, like after saying the darkest, like the darkest thing you can imagine. Yeah, the ideal example, because I think the rooftop scene between uh, Johnny and Mark is like this movie condensed into one one three minute scene. I think it's the most representative of all the weirdness of this movie. But there's that part where, yeah, yeah, what is it? He tells the story of like the 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 woman getting hit. Yeah, she was says, with three different guys and ended up yeah. in a hospital on Guerrero Street. Yeah, yeah thank yeah. you. Uh, it, yeah. It's a crucial detail to name now, um, as it was a crucial detail in the movie that it was on Guerrero Street. Thank you. Yeah, but it, it was the, ha <laughs> what a story, Mark. And yeah. that's a great one from Just, the book because Greg Sestero's like, hey, you know, this story's not funny, right? Like, it's a terrible story of what happens to this person. I don't think you should laugh. And, and Tommy Wiseau was like, no, it's a funny story. Tommy legitimately thought that the story that he had written for was was a joke where any 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 human being listening is like, "Oh my god, what a terrible story." Tommy Wiseau in real life, just like Johnny, like he thinks it's funny. Most human beings, but you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, it's just the absurd extreme of that certain point of view where I'm sure there are there are people who would say like, oh, you know, this woman was cheating on me and she got what she deserved. It's just the yeah, the MRA I, I agree. Thing I agree. The, the, yeah, I agree. The get with the deserved part. There would be people that would do the huh, yeah, got yeah. what they deserved. But Tommy Wiseau literally thinks it's a funny story, right? It, and it, it goes back to that thing about how he's totally without shame or a filter. Yeah, yeah. he like legitimately thinks it's like what a goof him around. Yeah, uh, this story. What's what's kind of amazing as we're discussing this, and, and we should probably kind of move into some scenes and final thoughts here pretty quickly. But 
it's so funny discussing this episode or discussing this movie in this episode because these all sound like criticisms of the movie. Everything that we're saying about how this doesn't work is why the movie works. Like, it's so funny to have have a conversation the way we are. The unspoken part of everything we're saying is, yeah, but this is this is critical. Like, this is crucial to the whole thing fitting together. So these are not criticisms uh, of, of the movie on a whole. These are head scratchers on a scene-by-scene basis. It, it's, you know, as I said, the reason that I'm so interested in this movie is that it's a psychological profile. And it's one that allows me to kind of examine this point of view from a safe distance. Because I went to a midnight screening of The Room... Uh, at the music box a few years ago and Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero were going to be there and I really didn't want to go because I did not want to be within a hundred feet of Tommy Wiseau but certain person in my life who who was like oh we have to go it's going to be so great and it was beyond uncomfortable and it goes back to what I was saying about how I don't want to see anything where he's in on the joke because because he's a monster yeah, he's going to try and like disguise what he's aware of is the darkest stuff, but you know, he's not he's not fully aware of what he should and shouldn't be disguising. And so the the other part of it was that there were people there who, you know, I I hate I hate the phrase like you're doing it wrong or you don't appreciate it for the right reasons, but there were people there who it like the way that they were showing him adulation and uh respect was really troubling to me yeah because like, i don't like this movie like i don't want to be like thank you tommy was for making this awesome movie because like the fact that it exists is kind of terrifying but be, as i said because i can examine it from a distance it feels safe yeah the you one see? criticism the one criticism of the room that i agree with 100 percent. i've heard it from a few different people is like the problem with this kind of adulation of this like horrible misogynistic document basically this unfiltered being into like the mind of a, a truly disturbed individual is that the the creator of this is still alive and the 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 collateral damage is that we've kind of exalted tommy Wiseau both in profile and in you know adulation as you say and he's embraced that because he, yeah. you know, he said it's a comedy. He's now happy that this this book that he hated now that it's being made into a real movie. He loves it. Oh, it um, was that was right before the book came out. It was so clear he was unhappy about the book being written. Yeah, but um, he doesn't care because he he's a you know he's a he will do anything for fame and adulation, which is why he wanted to be an actor and a director in the first place. but but anyway, so let's uh, let's. This is one of those movies that we could talk about forever. So, uh, in the interest of time for both uh, us, what meaning does time have? Though we we all watch the room. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So, what 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 are some uh, moments or like a moment that we didn't get a chance uh, to talk about? As we, I actually have one really quick thing, which is something that. That's always amazing to me about, uh, especially when we talked about Nolan, where like good directors are so great at trusting the audience to know that their brain is going to connect the dots so they don't need to show everything. And this is another like movie of like bad directors don't understand that to the extreme. So like bad movies always have these scenes of 
people driving places and slowly getting out of cars and walking into buildings and all these things that you don't need. But it really feels like if you're a bad director, you're like just bad at understanding how humans view movies to the point that you're like, okay, well, if I don't show them driving here and getting out of the car, this flower shop, no one's going to know how the fuck they got there. So I need to show every little thing. I need to show everyone opening the door, dialing the phone. Like it's so funny that, the kind of, I think, in some ways, the lack of imagination that causes people to make mad movies, they're making it because they keep making the same mistake as like, well, I couldn't figure this out. So I'm assuming no one in the audience could. Like, I love how the cafe scene begins with three people putting their orders in as a way of showing, oh, yeah, we're definitely at a cafe where people order food, in case you didn't know. The genuine auteurness of this constantly creates small moments where you realize that like Tommy was so truly was surrounded by yes men or he powered through those yes men. Uh, it's almost like George Lucasian people. People might like bring up the fact that like, Hey, why did, why did, are you having this conversation with this person? Like, we don't need to see how you got flowers to Lisa. You just needed to come home with flowers. And he's like, no, I want to have a flower shop scene where I say hello to a dog. Like it's a really, good by, by the way, the dog's the best actor in the movie because it's the only thing that gives off the sense that it's an, it's what it is playing. You, know? <laughs> you, you buy that it's a dog. I think you're cutting those flowers. You're giving those flowers a little bit of a short change, but okay. <laughs> um, I have two things that are pretty minor, but I don't see them get talked about that often. They're two of my favorite things that happen in the movie because they show such a lack of understanding of how people operate one one of which on such a fundamental level but one of them is when they're at the party some guy turns to his girlfriend and says lisa's looking really hot tonight because that's totally something that you'd say to your girlfriend you know yep. it's in it's in the movie to reestablish that lisa is this um like paragon of attractiveness like all the women wish they could be and all the men wish for but it's just, it's so funny seeing him say that and the girlfriend either – I forget if she just doesn't react or like gives a little nod. And the other thing is when Lisa orders pizza for her and Johnny, the pizza that she orders is half Canadian bacon with pineapple, half artichoke with pesto, light on the cheese, which – Putting aside that it's an impossible order. Oh, no. It would just flow together. It'd be all yeah. wrong. Like, no you pizza want two place different would, sauces? No. Yeah, no. No pizza place would do that. Putting that aside, like, what kinds of things does Tommy Wiseau think we humans eat? I mean, he's right about Canadian bacon and pineapple. That's but, great. Yeah. People who but, say it's bad are... are bad people i like it too but i still think that he gravitated towards the one of the more debatable foods out there like i love it it's like pizza's version of ketchup on hot dogs where there is a large contingent that like it and there's a large contingent that are like you are a crazy person for putting fruit on, on your pizza but like that is still like what even the normal one that he picks is like the most debated pizza well i don't even mean that i just mean that like the idea that someone would ask for those two halves together on one pizza is 
is mind-boggling. And all it is, the only the only thing that that's, that scene is establishing is that, and it's establishing something it does not need to establish, is that Lisa is watching out for Johnny and setting up a dinner for him. The idea of her ordering pizza for him is like, I guess supposed to show that she's a good girlfriend but like the every other scene is saying that she's like this conniving awful person also if you're trying to get your boyfriend drunk so you can make up a a, an abuse allegation which mind you that's some part of that's a that's part of this movie we haven't even fucking talked about is that there's an abuse a, a fake abuse allegation in the middle of this movie uh that does not it does not align with reality. We can, I think, I, we can safely trust Johnny that he did not hit her. Oh um, shit, he did not. I I love at the end when Lisa says when Lisa says that she made up the pregnancy because she thought it would be interesting. I'm like, that's some straight up Hannibal Lecter shit. That is that because it'd be interesting. Like yeah. she keeps calling Johnny boring at multiple points. The idea of a woman being bored by you know d- domesticity is like actually a really good drama subject. The idea that like a husband or a boyfriend or whatever is uh, you know they've been together for a long time and they're sort of settling into their rhythms and she's bored. Like that's a really like ripe area for drama that's been mined a lot, mind you. But it's been but it's a once the honeymoon is over and you're kind of just people. That that's a that's a thing, and instead the movie doesn't really like commit to that or uh, the idea that she's just an evil person. She's just, it's just like occasionally she drops hints that she's just like I'm gonna throw chaos in. She's like a a Joker figure, like a very horny Joker though, <laughs> or she's just like throwing chaotic elements at us and the audience and Johnny. Peter, I'm I'm pretty sure that you're about to get an email from WBDC saying that they want to buy your horny Joker pitch. <laughs> well, we think this kid's got ideas. The one thing that uh, that uh, <laughs> that Heath Ledger was missing was he wasn't horny enough. I mean, their their newest philosophy seems to be you can never have too many Joker movies in development. <laughs> Every single time that somebody brings up the idea of a different Joker after Heath Ledger, even with Heath Ledger, <laughs> even with Heath Ledger, a lot of people, myself included, were like, Heath Ledger for the Joker. That's a dumb idea. Like, we just thought we were going to get this pretty boy Joker who's going to stroll in and be like, I'm all in control. Like, I'm the I'm businessman Joker uh, because Heath Ledger is so pretty. And so he came in and he like groveled and turned himself into this monster. And then they're like, hey, what if we come up with just a series of awful takes on the Joker and then produce like one every two years? What a story, Peter. Thank you. But yeah, so the, there's a there's a juvenileness to how it views all the characters and the sort of chaotic view of Lisa is uh, just part of that that soup. That, that Tommy Wiseau is, is crafting right here. And it, my view of it is that it's like a juvenile drama that he's trying to commit. It has a very, it has a very um, 13 reasons why very like problematic postscript after Johnny kills himself where everybody is sitting around talking about how great he was and how sad they are that he's gone and how they fucked up and how it's Lisa's fault and like that's something that like the movie leading up to this point that's something that implies that Tommy Wiseau is actually like 
kind of has emotional issues. And the fact that ever that he's constantly saying, and Lisa's constantly saying, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, uh, kind of implies that, that he's just bottling this anger and this like distrust of people. And the idea that there's this scene at the end where people, everybody is just talking about how sad they are that he's gone after the suicide, that's something that like is a very juvenile idea of suicide. I remember Nathan Rabin was writing, I'm pretty sure it was a My Year of Flops, where he brought that up. And I, I don't think it was about The Room, but he was talking about how some some movie uh, had that very juvenile, like, oh, people are going to miss me when I'm gone. They're going to they're gonna realize how poorly they treated me and just how much they, um, just how much they lost by pushing me away. It, it's a very, it, you know, it goes back to the narcissism thing that we were saying earlier. It, it's... This weird um, uh, intersection of depression and narcissism where like, you feel like everyone has left you and it's all their fault for not appreciating you. Well, yeah. And this and this movie almost kind of serves as like him being able to do the act and then see everyone's reaction to it. Like that's clearly what he intended this movie to be. He he probably wanted to show it to people and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you went through this. Like, he wanted that reaction. He wanted to live that suicide fantasy, which is, I want to make everyone feel really bad about how they treated me and then watch watch their reaction to that so that I can see them. But the reason why that's a, a fantasy is that obviously if, you know, the, the Mark Twain fantasy, whatever. I was about to say it. Mark Twain did it better. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's why it's it's like, cause you can't actually do that. There's not a way to do that unless you literally fake your own death and show up at your own funeral. And this was, this is that, this is his attempt to do that. I think one of the weird things that we're never going to know and we're never going to understand it. And it's the only part that I ever feel a little bit, tiny modicum of bad for Tommy is that between when this movie was released and when it was kind of rediscovered a couple years later as a comedy, I just can't, I can't even picture what someone with, you know, some form of personality disorder, his like, you know, his suicide note or his whatever you want to call it, laughed at and mocked and like everyone's like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. You know, there's a level of narcissism in doing that in the first place. It's not like his intentions were pure. And obviously, this movie is a garbage bag of misogyny and other issues. But, yeah, it's it's such a I, – I, you know, it's almost like you almost want to be a fly in the wall in his brain. <laughs> what was going I, on during I, that oh, time period? I want to be as far away from his brain as possible. Is that almost – like just yeah. for that slight time period where he was processing, and then and then of course when it became a comedy, it took him a while to admit it, and then at some point he just embraced it because of course you know it's a Donald Trump thing. If the, the real estate doesn't work, I'll go start a university. Anything to be uh, to get adulation and be adored. See, like with Donald Trump, I kind of learned my lesson in that whole the feeling of I almost wish I could know this thing because I remember talking to a friend and being like. I don't like I, I, I would be, I am horrified at the idea of him winning, but there's a small part of me that thinks like I'm very curious to see what a yeah, well, Donald Trump's America would be. Yeah. And I look back now and I'm like, oh, n- like you fool, like, ne- like <laughs> never, never again. So like I, I learned my lesson about having that very small curiosity because sometimes 
you get your wish. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I think probably at least all of us at one moment was like, of course, I'd never want it to happen, but I'd love to have a yeah. mirror into an alternate reality. And instead, we we all hop through the mirror and and we're it, yeah. it, it's it, it's the idea of like everyone loves a car wreck. And I remember thinking, like, I, I, I just just being curious, like, what would it be like? What sorts of horrors would he unleash upon the world? And I, I even said that, like, the friend I was telling it to as a woman, I'm like, look, I, I know that I'm saying this with a lot of privilege because I would be the least affected by it. And she looked me right in the eye and said, yeah, you're right. Like, this is that is the most privileged thing I've yep. heard in a while. What a nightmare. Anyway, yeah, so, so so that's that's why I don't make those sorts of statements anymore. It's fair. It's very fair. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think, uh, yeah, fi- final thoughts on this insane one of a kind little movie <laughs> yeah it's a singular piece it's a unique piece i have i, I it, it's something that could only be viewed as real art because it is such a pure distillation of vision it is like the opposite of a consumer product like most consumers would see this and within five minutes get like a revulsion mm-hmm. like it has sex scenes that aren't sexy it has no real drama like there's nothing to like glom onto. Like it makes a lifetime movie look like really good. Like a <laughs> like, makes it pornography makes, look really good. It makes porto- pornography uh, look really good because at least like it makes pornography look like it's like pure distillation of like a moment of lust. This is like I mean, at least the cable gets fixed eventually. <laughs> at least we get a plot here. Somebody gets a pizza. Um, but at least we get to find out what's on the bang bus. Uh, <laughs> that driver's employed. That's that's a yeah. that's union probably. <laughs> so like, there's a there's a sense of like there's a sense of inadequacy that goes so deep. It's not a so bad it's good situation. It's a sense of inadequacy that goes so deep that you're like you just want to see how a person misunderstood everything about human development like from art to relationships to everything um like, and so yeah it's a- i mean it really is like watching some like some, the human experience filtered through someone who's never met a human before yeah and that's that whole concept is fascinating like, there's a lot of stuff in science fiction about oh how would aliens perceive us this is about as close as we're going to get to realizing that yeah for- Possibly ever. And as close as we're going to get to seeing, like, what true, like, misogyny looks like without, like, a hiding behind um, an internet chat room or, like, trying to disguise it or dress it up a little yeah. bit. And you're right, Peter. This is not a so bad it's um, it's good movie, which I don't think is an accurate description of any movie. Um, because if you're enjoying it, doesn't that make it good on some level? But I think to get off that soapbox... It is – this movie is just so – the room, it's the room. Like it defies classification even as a as a bad movie. Sure, it, it's incompetent, but it is – it is singular and there's just – there's there's nothing like this because normally if you're this incompetent, you don't have a budget this big. You don't have the means to get it produced. You don't have the means for people to get it – to see it eventually, which is what needed to happen for, for us to be talking about it. 
Yeah, normally something like this would just be a home movie that sits on your shelf. Or it never – no one would have – you would have ran out of money or ran out of drive. So like this was an extremely committed individual with a dream that he followed through on, had the means to create it, had the means to market it, had the means to release DVDs and then rent out theaters so that eventually a couple you know comedy writers saw it and was like, this is fucking nuts. We need to tell everyone about this. There's, and then, and then, of course, there's never a follow up because you once once that hits and once people get wind of what you're doing, it affects your work in a way that is unrepeatable. So there's a couple movies I feel like you know some of the what is it Neil Breen stuff that people talk about, which I haven't seen, uh, that kind of gets close to this kind of singular vision. Uh, I was the one that did the remake of The Wicker Mat, right? No, no, no. That's uh, Neil Short. This Neil Breen's like the Fateful Findings guy. Okay. I haven't seen any of his movies, but I've heard. Peter, did you did you end up watching Fateful Findings? I did watch Fateful Findings. It's uh, it is a a tough nut to crack. It is it's similarly incompetent. Uh, but I doesn't. It's not as like patently obvious like what the person Neil Breen thinks about the world. He definitely doesn't trust the government. It's more uh, macro-focused than micro-focused. Tommy doesn't understand people. Neil Breen doesn't understand the world. <laughs> so it's a little it's a little different, I think, but it's similar in its level of incompetence. I do love the scene where Tommy's yelling at Lisa about how she doesn't understand how the world works. And I'm like... <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting accusation to be throwing around there. Yeah, no. It, it well, I think that's kind of the the funny thing about this movie. Like, I think this movie is not like responsible for alt comedy, but I do think that like this this movie ended up being like insanely influential on like everything from Tim and Eric's uh, awesome show to stuff like the Greasy Strangler and all these. Like this this movie ended up being almost the uh, the Rosetta Stone for so much stuff because it did Tim and Eric before Tim and Eric was a thing and it did it better than than they could ever do and I really like Tim and Eric but they're chasing a level of ridiculousness that's like encapsulated in this movie which is one of the reason they're such big fans because and they would probably be the first to admit that like on our best day we get we get to 80% of the room's insanity Nothing like actually being insane to bring the insanity. Exactly. It's very helpful. So, yeah. So, thank you so much, Andrew. This was such a fun conversation. I hope I hope the people listening to this got had as much fun as we did. Uh, I hope it was a little different. I, I know the, the room is, you know, we don't consider ourselves in any way a bad movie podcast. The room gets covered on a ton of podcasts because it's an easy way. People have seen it. People want to talk about it. It's easy to get obsessed with it. So, hopefully, this ended up being a little different than the stuff that you've heard before while still sort of uh, recognizing the the terrible message of the movie, but still celebrating it as a unique object. Well, thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. This is so much fun. Do you have, uh, Andrew, do you have anything to promote? Uh, I do not at this point. I will someday, but not today. If you need someone to to help you through uh, the defiled uh, watchdog in Bloodborne, uh, oh Jesus Christ! Please don't <laughs> tell people. I'll help them with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you guess his PlayStation name, great news. <laughs> maybe, maybe he'll help you out. We're not going to say it. We're not going to promote it. But he, but there are people like Andrew out there willing to guide you uh, into into the night. So 
Uh, the rest of September is going to be Joseph Finn and Firefox, a Cold War techno thriller. And we're uh, very excited to have that one on. And then... Not next week, the rest of September. <laughs> Sorry, what? Sorry, you said, and for the rest of September, Joseph oh, yeah. Finn. Sorry. <laughs> so for the rest of September, we'll be I'm... doing three weeks on Joseph Finn uh, um, and the movie Firefox. And then, Peter, I'll let you, I, I can run down uh, the quick list of what we're doing for October, Halloween month. We're, we're going to be doing the, uh, the, the same thing for our intro segments where we're going to be talking about what we're watching for Spooktober. Peter, you came up with the names, though. What is the theme, drum roll, for October, Peter? October this year is going to be a Slugfest. So it's Slugfest. Gonna... It's Slugfest 2017. So it's <laughs> Come on to down be... to the community center. <laughs> Come on down to the community center. You'll for Slugfest. For Slugfest. Um, so Slugfest 2017 is going to be... Uh, slug-based horror movies. So uh, those little parasites that you just love to hate uh, are going to be covered. So Yeah, so really quick, we'll talk about it more in detail, but we're doing slugs. We're doing Night of the Creeps. Then we're doing Slither, and that's going to be with uh, Morgan Renis. And then we are, uh, and then we are finishing out Slugfest with Beth Powder and the David Cronenberg movie Shivers. We'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, all those selections next week. And then we are finishing up with a special Halloween week episode that is a surprise that we'll talk about later. So Slugfest Halloween special, Spooktober 2017. And before that, you know, just a uh, just just Firefox, Joseph Finn. Yeah, just uh, Firefox. Ah, <sighs> Firefox. Joseph Firefox, Schiffin. Firefox, the longest movie ever put on celluloid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, by the way, Andrew, usually this last, uh, we edit heavily, so this last stretch, unless we're really, like, jiving, is usually, like, us just loopy and weird. Yeah, that's where that's where awkward endings came from, is because we were tired, and we were trying to piece together our thoughts that's why we always save the, the episodes weirdly. So, yeah, we're, we're at the awkward closing. This is it. Andrew, do you want to awkward us out of here? Do you want to say anything weird? Do you want to not figure out how to end your fucking show, even though this is episode 71? I just think that if we all love each other, the world would be a better place. Oh, bye, Andrew. <laughs> bye, Peter. Oh, bye, guys. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, 
Uh, tell us we're stupid. Tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again... Above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.